or let me start all over again. <laughs> hey, this is Richard Wright, and this is the Bladeology Podcast. Enjoy your evening. jump into it like we do every week welcome to another episode of the bladeology podcast uh this is a special week we're on with um a special guest host we've got uh chuck with us chuck how you doing good how are you happy to be here all right Uh, happy to happy to have you on and we've got a an even more special guest we have we have jd smith how you doing i'm hanging tough hanging light Walking tight, tripping light. We're on. Let's go. Nice. All right. That's you know that's that's the way to do it. Um, it's uh, I'm pretty sure it's episode. I'm gonna say it's episode 27. If I if I remember that correctly, and uh, I think this is this is gonna be uh this is gonna be a good one. And I think we just had somebody else join us. What the hell. Hey, what's up? Who's that? Nick Chuprin. We're recording. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're we on the air, bro. Up. We're on the air. Oh, great. No, I had some uh, some news as soon as I walked into my building, so I was like, oh, I got to sanitize. You got to stay safe out there. Um, all right, so uh, let's let's jump into it. JD, uh, thank you so much for taking time and and coming on with us, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you about uh, a whole wealth of things. Um, we just um, so we just interviewed Richard Wright uh, last week, and um, you came up in the podcast uh, talking about hammering some steel and and the New England switchblade movement, which we'll we'll get into. But um, how did we get how did we get here? Where did where did this all where did this all start? Take take us take us from the top, if you if you will. For me, well, it started when I was a kid. When I was like maybe 10 years old and I lived in New York City. I remember one summer, it was 1959. Um, I was strolling around Central Park during the summer. And I got down as far as the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And so I decided to just go in. I had what a kid that age might have in his pocket, like a dime or a quarter or something like that. And that's what it cost to get in at the time. And I strolled around the museum and finally got around to the arms and armament section. And I remember seeing a um, beautiful uh, jade-handled uh, shamshir that was encrusted with emeralds and diamonds. And I remember looking at the blade going like, what are those wavy lines all over it? And just pretty much like a kid, put it out of my mind for the time being. But I didn't know what they were, but I was curious about them. And I remember a friend of mine had a an Indonesian Chris on his coffee table. This is I'm in my 20s now already. And I pulled it out. And I saw those lines again all over the steel. And I was like, what is this stuff? I had no name for it. Until 1979, I opened, the, I cracked open the copy of um, Soldier of Fortune on the newsstand. And there was an article about Bill Bagwell and how he was building Damascus steel fighting knives. And I looked at the pictures and suddenly I had a name for it. 
Damascus Steel. And at that point, I was kind of like thinking towards the future. I'm going to have to figure this out one day and find out how to do this. I remember feeling like I really want to learn to make this stuff. And I was extremely fascinated by it. So we're going to fast forward ahead to 1981. Um, A year out of college, um, slightly underemployed, and I was dating a silversmith. And she eventually, we eventually got married and started the family, et cetera. But at the time, you know, she taught me silversmithing from the ground up. And um, we were working for a company called Gebeline Silver, and we were part of their repair and restoration department. And we were informed one day that um, the blacksmith at the Saugus Ironworks had made for us some specialized uh, silversmithing tools and we were to go up and pick them up from Saugus Ironworks from him. When I got there, we were told to go down to the smithy and collect them there. When I walked into the smithy and I smelled the coal and iron, that was, that was it for me. All, I, I don't know what it, it, it got me in touch with, maybe something primal, something ancient, something in my epigenetics, who knows? But, I knew at that point, that's my next move. That's what I've got to do. And I hounded him for months and months and months about taking me on. And finally, he relented and found a special government program that I could be a part of where he could teach me this. And I worked for with him for a couple of days a week for like, I don't know, what, four years almost. And he taught me uh, traditional blacksmithing, and he was a pretty good bladesmith himself. And whatever he knew about it, he taught me. So I made my first uh, straight knives um, there. I made my first pattern welded steel out of um, wrought iron and old files there with him striking. It wasn't a uh, a real classy looking material, but I managed to bang something together and and etch it and, and to see a pattern. I was thrilled. So I went on from there, basically. Um, I worked at um, the silversmithing gig for a number of years until we decided we wanted to go out on our own. Uh, One of the reasons was the silversmithing company uh, dropped, decided to drop the repair and restoration department. And my wife and I, we picked it up. We bought their tools. We bought their client list. And we started um, servicing their clients on our own. At which point uh, we got a studio in the South End. And within a couple of years, I decided that I was out of that and I was going to open my own bladesmithing studio. So I found a space in South Boston and began doing that. Wow. Okay. That's pretty uh, intense. Yeah, we're up to 1990, 1991 by this time. Yeah. Okay. Huh. So from silversmithing jumped right into, uh, wow. So I mean, at the time that wasn't a thing, though, right? Like in, in the in the in the '90s, like you were in South Boston with a with a forge and a knife studio. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Just <laughs> just just, uh, just clearing that up. Okay. No, it was an, an an old distillery building that they had um, converted into artist spaces, and I had a studio okay. in the basement. Where so just wait out of curiosity, what is it anywhere I would know in Southeast? Where where was it? East Second Street. 
He's second straight. Uh, it's been a minute since I've been over there, but all right. Yeah, that I, it's certainly not something you'd see now. Uh, that whole area has just been totally stripped and gentrified. But that's pretty gnarly that you were there in the '90s building knives. That's uh, that's pretty neat. Okay. All right. So well, where, I, uh, where where from where from then? Where, what was next? Well, I stayed in that studio from 1990 to 2001. So I was there a good 11 years. And um, during that time, I had joined the ABS and I went in, of course, as an apprentice and got my journeyman stamp, I think, in um, 95. Yeah. And I had also joined the Knife Makers Guild by that time. And in 1998, I got my master's stamp from the ABS. And, um, and you know, what they say, the rest, as they say, is history. Also, during that time, I began um, a program at Massachusetts College of Art and began a bladesmithing program at Massachusetts College of Art. So it was one of the few schools where you could learn bladesmithing at the college level that I taught. And... Hmm. Out of that program came Andrew Mears, Zach Jonas, Tom Ward, Paul Cooper. And I do believe, Chucky, that you came and took my class at some point. I took your Damascus making class. Yeah. So Wait, so did you take it at Mass Art? Yeah. I did. Yep. Oh, wow. So, okay. So Andrew Mears went to Mass Art. Yeah. He's a graduate of Mass Art. He was the first no one to actually gra- graduate Mass Art with a degree in bladesmithing. Dude, that's pretty righteous, to be fair. That's pretty cool. That's, yeah, that's pretty cool. Now, is Mass Art, is that considered trade school or is that where he got actually a degree for it or it was just kind of like a learning center? Yeah. No, it's it's a, a, you get an academic degree. I mean, they offer uh, uh, undergraduate and graduate degrees there. Oh, wow. It's the only state-run art school, um, I think, in the nation. I want to yeah. say almost la- the last time I remember, the Mass Art's a pretty special special occasion. Yeah. It's the only state-run state-run art school. Yeah. Okay. I spent uh, a lot of time crossing yeah. the tracks at, at Huntington Avenue. I'm, uh, I had a bunch of good friends go there. Um, no, well, uh, really is crazy. Mecca is Mecca a state-run art school? Main College of Art? I'm not sure. Uh, I was almost going to say CalArts. How about RISD? Brown School of Design. Yeah, RISD too. I'm yeah. not sure about that. In because any case, you know, math art just is art, though. There's no like, there's yeah. there's no uh, there's no other only art. Like, uh, yeah, all kinds art. of art. Yeah, textiles, right, so computer, open... you know, jewelry, yeah. blacksmithing, sculpture, all art, illustration. Just, animation just art. just art that's pretty cool so you started that whole you started that whole thing um yourself at the school for for bladesmithing there was that's nobody right. doing it before that nope nope wow i okay. walked in i walked in off the street one june morning and um had a few blades with me and i went right up to the uh the 3d chairs office and i said i showed them what I had, I had some Damascus blades and I said, unless you offer this, you really can't say you're offering the latest in, in art metals, you know, technology. You can't say that. And he goes, you know what? You're right. <laughs> you want to do a guest <laughs> artist spot? <laughs> so I did a guest artist spot, uh, made some steel, did some hammering and, um, 
They brought me back a couple more times between 1991 and 1994. And they finally said, like, would you like a job here? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So, you know, I started, I started, I built the program there. And like like they say, the rest is history. I graduated uh, many, many fine bladesmiths and, you know, people have enjoyed that course for close to 25 years. Oh man. Okay. That's um, some serious lineage. Okay. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's a, that's an, that's an impressive, impressive roster of Smiths. Uh, and to build a program from nothing uh, into something I can't imagine must've been a little bit tricky uh, at times to say the least. Well, the school was behind it. Oddly enough, the school fell behind it, and they basically, anything I asked for, they bought. Hmm. Hydraulic press, decent power hammers, other tooling, forges. They were behind the whole thing. It it was very successful um, uh, in no small part because the school was enthusiastic about backing it. Right. I mean, that that helps to be working with... um you know, like a willing partner, you know, someone who's someone's into it and, you know, wants it to succeed just as much as you do that. That certainly helps. Absolutely. I don't think there's any other way to do it besides that, you know, right. With an educational institution at any rate. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's a, yep. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, bladesmithing program, mass art and, um, Okay, what's what's the next step from from there? Where where do we find ourselves in the uh, in the in the there to the present tense? Well, the present tense, um, I, I have to say that um, I'm actually kind of um, retired, nice <laughs> or <Okay>. semi-retired. <laughs> you know, um, it's 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 just not an everyday thing for me. I'm I'm more or less chilling now at, at age seventy, going on seventy-one. You know. I've worked a long time and, you know, I don't want to be pounding on anvils and stuff anymore. Right. You know, sometimes that, uh, sometimes just, just, uh, chilling is, is the way to go. Yeah. That's, that's totally reasonable. All right. Well then, um, got grandchildren now. I like playing with my grandkids. All right. This is okay. This brings up the the life outside of knives. I swear it doesn't exist, but apparently it does. You're telling me, so okay, I trust you. I don't believe it. That work. Yeah, right. Um, all right. Well, let's let's jump back a little bit. Let's 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 build some uh, historical timelines here. Um, tell me about tell me about the crew in Rhode Island. Tell me about uh, the connection with Bill, with Richard, with Chuck. Tell me about. Um, the New England guys. Let's 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 jump back. Well, I, I I'm trying to recall now. I think I met Bill at one of the NCCA shows um, back in the day. I don't even recall what year it was. It was probably 1990 or 91. It could even have been as early as 89. I don't recall exactly. Okay, but um, when we when I fell in with these guys, um, I was actually the only one actually doing forge work. And um, I was feeding McHenry and um, steel too. He, he needed stuff. I was feeding it to him and, and um, I'd go down to his ranch and we, we'd hang out and 
I'd be absorbing a lot of stuff from him and asking him a lot of questions about this, that, and the other thing, pestering him, you know, really trying to um, get my folder thing off the ground. And I don't think I would have gotten it anywhere near as far off the ground I did at, at, at first as I did without his help and assistance. I mean, he was absolutely invaluable in that. Um, and I owe him everything in, in terms of like what I know about folders and auto making. Hmm. Wow. All right. Yeah. I mean, that's, he certainly seemed to be an individual of, uh, of good rapport between the people who, who knew him and, and spent time with him. Mm-hmm. Um, sad to, to bring up his passing. Um, but, but good that he, we imparted so much knowledge, right? No, was, uh, yeah. He imparted a lot of knowledge. He was very generous with himself. Um, very, very generous. And um, on occasion, he'd come up to my studio in, in South Boston and we'd spend a few days, you know, just making pattern welded material and, you know, doing stuff, hanging out, going to blues clubs after. And, you know, that's pretty legit. OK. All right. Yeah. Getting it getting it done at the blues club. OK. Um, well, tell us a little bit about it. The um, tell us a little about the, the steel that you make. Um, uh, we were going over it a little before we started recording here, but we were we were getting into some ethos uh, behind um, behind some of your Smith work. Mm-hmm. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Mm, what specifically? What, what we're talking about? Why I do it and what I make and why I make it? Yeah, all oh, that sounds okay. pretty good. Yeah, all right then. Well, I mean, anybody who knows my work. Um, or is familiar with it in any way knows that I mostly almost a hundred percent they're weapons. I, I make weapons. I don't make friendly, you know, little pocket knives and things like that. Everything I make looks dangerous and scary. It's a weapon. And the reason for that is it's largely again philosophical because weapons are a really special class of human artifact. I feel they're special in the way that they're able to do something no other human artifact does, which is separate a free man from a slave. Because if you have a slave population, there's one thing they are never permitted to own or touch, and that's a weapon. Why? Because a weapon can defend your life. You have life, you have liberty, you have the pursuit of happiness, you're free. Well... No one can take the things that sustain your life, your food, your clothing, your shelter. No one by has any right to those things or any right to deprive them from you. Okay. So since you have the right to have free access to those things, you also have by extension, the right to defend them and the means by which to do it. So in my world, if you have, the right to life, you have the right to defend it, the right to the means of that defense. And if you can do those things by right, you're free. And if you can't, what are you? And for me, there's nothing further to cloud the issue. It's a really great explanation Mm. of why you make what you make. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty clear, you have that pretty well defined. There, there's no, there's no gray areas there for for sure. Yeah, most- has that has that always been like that, or is that like a last mm. decade? 
No, it's always been that way. Okay. All right. And most knife makers, when you approach them, it's why do you make what you make? It's never usually, they always try to avoid the word weapon. And your explanation is no, I make a weapon. I do what <laughs> yeah. I do because it's a weapon. That's uh, uh, a very weapons forward, weapons positive way of thinking. And, yep. and I'm familiar with your work. So, like, obviously, you're not making, like you said, you don't make small knives. You're making like short swords and things like that. Like, these aren't, like, it's not so open a box, but like a box of a package. It's, it's, it's decapitate someone. Or delimb someone after them. <laughs> As someone I heard once, uh, I think Bill McHenry actually said this. He says they're objets, uh, thin, um, murder weapons, thinly veiled as objets dart. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. It's a, it's a good, it's a, that's a good way to describe them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've Weapon got forward. We've got Bill to thank for that one. Okay. Um. So what about okay? I mean, that's a good segue. What what size of the what size are we talking about for people who are unfamiliar with your work? How, I mean, how big are these things? How 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 sizable are they really? Anything I Anywhere make is, is it can be it could be any size. If it's a folder, it's going to have at least a four inch blade. If it's a fixed okay. blade, anywhere from like six to nine, ten inches, or and, and upwards. Wow. Okay. And so always pattern welding or, or just um, that's just that's what you do, period. I would have to All say ni- 95% of what I make is pattern welded. I, I feel that it's the way to actually make the material you make the blade from an expressive medium of its own merits that can stand completely on its own artistic merits. So when you're referring to pattern welded, are you referring to just all Damascus in general or like mosaic Damascus? Because when I all the all Damascus in general. Okay. Because when I've always referred to it, I've always thought of pattern welded as like mosaic where you restack it. I could be wrong, I'm not a forger, so that's what I was asking. Well, all all classes of Damascus steel are can be put under the heading of pattern welded steel. Mm-hmm. Have you ever done the um I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you have, but I have to ask uh, the the sort of um, it was it was popular for a bit. The sort of extruded uh, there were like skulls in it. I forget the it's powder can Damascus and stuff like that. Yeah, like yeah. He, yeah. Of course, I've, I've done that stuff, but honestly, I don't favor it personally. It's um, for my taste. It just doesn't look serious enough. It looks uh, mm. kitsch, kitschy. Right. And, you know, when you're making, I, I personally feel when you're making a serious weapon, it's got to reflect that seriousness. It's got to reflect that um, intent and potential. Uh, I, know, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of the, the Candamascus where they're excluding the, like demon skulls or random things like that. But I do like um, particularly Greg Sims um, examples of his kitchen knives. Where he kind of mixes uh, the actual, he cuts little squares, mixes the images he makes, then he actually reforges it back together with actually pattern Damascus that he makes. And so there's about three or four layers that's stacking up to these kitchen knives. There's a little wide flat surface, and that's what his knives are known for: is the Damascus he makes with them and the artwork within the Damascus itself. It's not just one pattern; it's sometimes two, three patterns, and then these little boxes that show different artwork that he's made within it as well. 
Are you, are Chuck, um, are you familiar with Sims' work? Yeah, I know who he is. He does a lot of kitchen knives. He does a lot of San Mai. Yep, he's in upstate New York. I know he goes to the New England Metal School a lot. So, J.D., do you have a particular Damascus pattern that you enjoy making more than others, like Firestorm or Turkish Twist or or um, Crush W's? Like, do you have a favorite pattern? You know what? I've 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 used to say that I really didn't, but that's not true. I I actually like patterns that are derived from W's a real lot. You can do a lot with that type of pattern. There's so many things that you can combine it with that you can there's so many ways to mix it, match it, cut it, restack it and and come up with really really truly interesting patterns. Um but generally speaking, I like I like them all because uh, you can do so much. What I mean, what I mean by that is you can do fine layered patterns, bold patterns, mix fine and bold, mix twisted and other things. There's so many ways that you can reform, reshape, rearrange different patterns. That's the fascination for me, making the material that, again, that can stand on its own artistic merits. That's what makes it so much fun for me. Can you go over a little bit of the Crush W's? The Crush W's uh, occur when you take a pattern, you just make straight layers, then you turn it 90 degrees from its original uh, orientation then you smash it down. Basically, you just hammer it so that the the lines are now perpendicular to the axis, but you've crushed them down so that they become splayed out. And then when you fold it again, that's when you start to see the W form. And what I'll usually do is I'll do maybe 15, 20, even 30 sometimes 40 layers before I turn it 90 degrees and begin crushing it down, at which point I'll do at least six to eight iterations of that. I've also been known to, to start my crush at 200 layers, take it up really high and you can get some really incredible optical effects um, by doing it that way. Lots of chatoyance. Some, some serious. uh, Okay. Wow. 200 layers. It's no joke. Uh, you were talking about the the beauty of 100% creation, what what we might call now is like a sole authorship piece, but you were actually talking about making the steel to make the Damascus. Is that correct? No, no, I don't do that. Uh, that's not one of my particular quirks. Uh, I know a lot of guys who like to make the steel to make the Damascus. But I don't see any personal need to do that myself. I would rather just buy good virgin stock from like Bruno, Aldo Bruno, or or whom, whomever I can get it from, and um, and, and work work it from there. Because to do, go through that whole rigmarole to smelt it and whatnot, that's not my cup of tea. I don't put it down, but it's just not my cup of tea. It's not how I right. work. Focusing on the the pattern welding itself, exactly. Uh, Okay. All right. Um, crush W's. What, uh, if, if you had to best describe the process of, um, so what, what's the chemical process that's, that's actually happening? Can, can you get into that at all? That that's always sort of intrigued me. Like, is it just heat or is it the bonding of the steel okay. or is it? 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, If you had to say scientifically, uh, give a a technical description of what pattern welding is, pattern welding is, it is solid state fusion. The uh, phenomena of pattern welding is essentially at the uh, molecular level, electrical. What happens is when you get the two pieces of metal close enough and put enough energy into the system and for, and it, as heat, what happens is the molecules and atoms become extremely energetic and they're moving very quickly. And the friction of that movement basically is what's causing heat, what causes it to become incandescent and, and light up and glow. Because that, that's just molecular activity accelerated to a very high level, okay? And when it's in that state and they're brought within close proximity to one another, two atoms, basically two molecules rather, will share outer orbits. The The electron shells of adjacent atoms will cross over and share borders, and that's where the bond occurs. So when you hammer something or use it in a hydraulic press or put it in a hydraulic press, you're not actually pressing it together as most people think. What you're doing is you're putting the two pieces in close enough proximity so this what is called covalent bonding can occur. And it's essentially, again, an electrical hmm. phenomenon. Down at the atomic. Okay, so the hammering process is not actually the bond. It's a. It's like you're describing. Okay, interesting. No. It's just to put make the pieces get close enough together so that this bond can occur. Okay, and so so then when delamination happens, that's an improper bond, or, or the, they didn't get close enough. That's correct. Um, the most important wells that you make when you when you're producing a piece of pattern welding material are your first weld and your last weld. The first weld because that establishes the integrity of the entire structure, and your last weld because your last weld is your most important because it has had the least amount of time to to make secure bonds within that structure. As you work the metal, right, more and more atomic bonds occur. And you've had the least amount of time at your last weld to make that happen. So my common practice, my best practice is in your last weld, you do not start too close to finished dimensions. You start very wide from finished dimensions. So if you want to finish down to three sixteenths, you start with two pieces that are um, three eighths of an inch or two pieces that are half an inch thick and then work it down from there because the additional heating time will form greater and more numerous bonds which give the material greater integrity. So you usually for, you usually start your forge with some thicker stock and two or three layers, and then you forge it out and fold it over to get your layer count. I don't. Oh, okay. um, that's one way of doing it. But I do. I start with uh, pieces that are 
anywhere from uh, 40,000 stick, 50,000 stick like that. That's so I can start with more layers and accelerate the layering process more. Yeah, that's what Rather I usually started, do. It. Right. Okay, and I was wondering because I was like, oh, that's a lot of forging now. Go from half and then fold it. It'll also mm-hmm. do some pretty cool distortion doing it that way too, though. Mm-hmm. Well, when I say half an inch, I mean after you've already uh, gone up to like a couple of hundred layers or wherever it is you're oh, going. Okay. You want your last weld to start with thick pieces, not thin pieces. Now, what, what do you mean by last weld? Are you just pretty much the same as last heat? Your your last weld, your last welding procedure, mm-hmm. your last fold, so to say. Okay. That's a very good way to describe the process of Damascus. Very scientific. I've been to a bunch of hammer-ins, couple with Aldo. And uh, you were a teacher, of course. So I, I assume you have a lot of experience talking about it. But it was a very uh, clean spoken way of describing the process of Damascus making on the on the final bonds. Mm-hmm. Well, as well, um, the whole fluxless welding thing, you know, I was kind of the first one to get out in front of that. I was reading um, I, I, I perused the Internet for papers and treatises on metalwork and metallurgy and whatnot. And I remember about eight years ago, I found something about what they call the oxygen reduction process. I'm like, I started reading about it, and it's about how to purify metals by removing the oxides from them and re and reverting them back to their pure state. Okay. So I said, might this work for making pattern welded steel? So I tried it. Um, at, at that point, guys had been, already been using kerosene and things, and some of them were completely abandoning the use of flux and using kerosene uh, um, as as a means of, um, I'm not sure what they were using it for, maybe to evacuate oxygen, possibly. But I thought about the whole process, and I said, well, what happens when you expose the steel to heat and oxygen you get oxides what the oxygen reduction process does is it basically takes the formula for combustion fuel heat and oxygen and impoverishes the oxygen factor so that what happens is the the process of combustion starts to get oxygen from anywhere it can find it. And it takes it from the oxides and reverts the oxides back to pure iron. And when they're in that uh, state of proximity with enough energy, they bond. And when you weld without flux, the bonds are more complete. They're more secure and you get it done faster. Introduction of flux is nothing but a contaminant. And trust me on this, it's entirely unnecessary. You don't need it. Uh, on Knife Maker's whiteboard, I did a demo um, of bonding a billet completely just with two or three hits in one direction, then turning it on edge after I initially bonded it and and completed the drawing out procedure. Most people wouldn't even try that with a flux weld because it would would break apart because the bonds would not be secure enough 
with one welding heat. But the bonds become extremely secure with only one welding heat when you do it fluxless. Hmm. Prove them wrong. All right. I got you. You go back to knife makers, go back to knife makers whiteboard and look up yeah. my posts and it's there. I demonstrate hmm. it. So is there is there any pattern that is is more or less strong than another just as far as a weapon goes or are they all equally that doesn't matter like they're just as strong? Oh, I've thought about this one a great deal too and what I've come up with that the the jelly roll pattern is probably the one of the most secure patterns if you want to make um something that's never going to fail. The reason is when you when you jelly roll something up it doesn't have any it doesn't have any open edges. Hmm. Like you're just literally talking about like uh in in layman's terms like um like a Swiss roll, just like two two yeah, just roll rolled up. up. Okay. Okay. Just roll it up. And there's and it's because there are no open edges. When things fail, they usually fail at the edges. And when you jelly roll it, there are no edges. So I've thought about this in the past too when making Damascus because I've also made materials that aren't true Damascus, more like mocha maze, where they're more of a brace mm-hmm. bond. Uh, I came to my own conclusion where what made sense to me, where if Damascus, based on what they explain the processes, you get one homogenous piece at the end there. So if the well if the welds are clean, then once you clean it up and you see no cracks, technically it shouldn't it should be just as strong as normal steel. Uh, that's just my thought process on it. I, I see you have more experience in this than I do. Unlike Mokume, where I've literally had it peel apart while bandsawing, or the newer materials like uh, Q-Zerk, which is copper and zirconium. Uh, like I've made mainly I've only made uh, mainly I've made stainless Damascuses and titanium Damascuses. I've only really made carbons at hammer ends because they weren't ever letting me do flux in our forge. But I've never tried the uh, the flux uh, fluxless fluxless carbon method. Try it. You'll like it. You'll see immediately it's better. Mm. I, I gotta give it a try. I don't have access to Forge anymore. It's I used to work out of NJ Steel Baron's shop for about three years before I moved back to New York. So I was over there once in a while I'd forge over them with them. But I'll be back over there soon. Did you got a press in the rolling mill? I want to go play mm-hmm. with the rolling mill. I've I've done um, a number of posts and articles. Uh, I did one on the ABS blade site where I completely broke down the pattern, um, the fluxless welding process. And everyone who's tried it is amazed at how simple it is and how effective it is and how much better it is than a flux weld. Kevin Cashin at some point, um, I remember Kevin Cashin, um, Christoph Derringer and myself, um, we did a road trip, um, something that Christoph had arranged up in Canada. It was called the Can Iron Festival, the Canadian Iron Festival. And up there, I demonstrated it as well. And uh, Kevin Cashin at some point, he's kind of um, a science guy where, where pattern welding is concerned and uh, the metallurgy of bladesmithing is concerned. He's He's right up there with people who know a, a great deal about the technical aspects of it. And he has aspect to, um, I'm sorry, access to things like um, mic, mic, micro photography and things where he'll polish a section and really examine it under high magnification. And what he's found is that all flux wells have small inclusions in them of flux and other non-combustible material. But the non-flux welds 
are absolutely free of any um, contaminants in the world. Imperfect surfaces, huh? Right. Plus, he's he's noted that you have only a small amount of decarb at the edges where pattern welded uh, um, micrographs that he's taken have a lot of decarburation, decarburization um, within the billet itself, which is absent from the non-fluxed welding. Hmm. You know, Nick brings up um, kind of an interesting point. Um, have you ever ventured into any of the, the higher jewelry grade stuff, like the Makume or the, or the Makume Gain? I've made a lot of mocha megani. Yes. Okay. All right. That's right. Sil- silversmith thing. That that must have been um, mm-hmm. uh, a popular order at, at a point. He's probably made more exotic mocha megani consisting of silver, rhodium, platinums. I'd assume. You know what? I never got into the really exotic stuff. My my former apprentice uh, Kevin Klein is doing that now. He, you know, um, he got into it when he was my apprentice from 2012 through through 2000. And- what 15 yeah mm-hmm. and he he got on the mokume train pretty quickly and he's it's become a favorite technique of his as a matter of fact, we're talking about mokume i was uh both he and i were invited to do the um mokume artisans of north america show in tokyo oh, wow. so wow. we exhibit we we exhibited some uh, mokume uh, of our mokume pieces there in tokyo in Japan, wow. yeah, in Tokyo in 2016, 17. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I want to revisit some Okamegane. I, I I started when I was first learning to forge a Okamegane, and Aldo gave me a couple tips, but he never really made it. And there's not much info about making Okamegane properly on, online, except just clean it really well. And I, I, had, I made it, but... The, the, the point of decalescence, I had the brass melt out on me a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had more luck making silver and copper. Every time I involved brass in it, uh, one out of three times, I, I'd miss that little window and the brass yeah, would melt. Yeah, yeah. And then you hit, yeah, you, brass hit is tricky. you hit that squeeze and then just splatters yeah. everywhere. Yeah, brass is tricky. Yeah, I've, tried, yeah. I've attempted it like six times and that's what's like a third. So about twice I had the brass melt out. And then most of the time, the silver copper always kind of worked out. That was a lot easier. Yeah, I like silver copper. I, I like um, uh, fine silver and uh, copper the best for me personally, because that interface between the silver and copper that eutectic that that forms at that bond gives a distinctly different color mm-hmm. than the silver or the copper when you pickle it in ferric chloride. It comes out pure white, and the the silver comes out a purplish, and the copper comes out. Um, uh, kind of a pinkish brown, so you get a nice three color uh, piece of material with that. Yeah, I was trying. I was always trying to find something, some way to blacken the silver and not blacken the cop- copper. But most of the chemicals ended up blackening both. Yeah, try ferric chloride, like a weak solution. I've tried that. It'll do yeah. like a silver patine, like you mentioned, like a bluish purple hue to it. Yeah, it's been a while. I gotta, I gotta get back over to Aldo's and try some of their new forging equipment. I want to forge some stuff out. I still got stainless billets in my shop that I have to clean up. Mm-hmm. They just, I don't know if you, how much you work the stainless billets, but performance knife steel stainless billets are a pain to clean. Uh, it just, it just becomes really hard. And then yeah, I have, I haven't worked with the stainless materials, but um, Will Brigham, man, he's doing some pretty extraordinary work with that, with stainless. Mm-hmm. I've seen some of his, Man, his material looks fantastic. 
Yeah, but the problem is it's it, it there's a lot of loss and two uh, it's very prone to cracking sometimes you get these cracks that are half inch three quarters of an inch from the edge going to the billet there's uh, nothing you can do about them it, you're you're forging within a very small temp window and if the temperature changes a little bit and you overwork it or just this one uh, crack keeps working out sometimes you're just better off chopping the crack off or getting it off yeah. before it spreads the last yeah. ones that I made were a lot better. I I, I I stopped stacking them and roughly grinding it to shape. I started actually face milling all the sides to where there's uh-huh. a precise fit and that greatly like 75% less cracking. But if you just kind of uh-huh. grind it more closely within like a, even a 16th of an inch or bandsaw it to where it's really close, like normal carbon, eh, you're going to get a lot more loss. You're better off putting in that time machining everything square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a whole different animal. Yeah, I, I, I imagined it would be, and I think I've avoided it for that reason, that um, the kind of working processes that I have available to myself and what I'm after pattern-wise didn't seem to really be suitable for stainless. Yeah, you could do a lot of the mosaic stuff, uh, re-welding it. The problem is any of the mosaic stuff where you have to re-weld it, it takes a lot of work because you have to clean it up yeah. every time, and then there's the loss exactly. every time. So exactly. you don't see much mosaic stainless Damascus out there, even for sale. Very few guys do it. Mike Norris is known for doing it. Uh, the titanium, it's it's the prep work is a is a pain, but forging it's pretty nice. It moves like carbon mm-hmm. Damascus, moves pretty easily. Uh huh. Yeah, I've got a term for material. I call it material attrition. What you what you lose in the process just fell by the wayside. Yeah, JD. Um, take take us back to some uh, take us back to some show stories. Tell tell us about um, tell us about some of your. Uh, what, what was your first Blade show? I think my first Blade show was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was 1992. Yeah, pretty early. Yeah, I, I gotta admit, <laughs> was that in Georgia? It was in Georgia. I don't remember a whole hell lot about it. It's been a while. What is that? Like, what? 1992. What is that? 18 years? Just a couple. It's just a few years ago. Oh, wait. No, 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 sorry, 28 I, years. Yeah, it's 28. It's almost 30 <laughs> years right, ago. And 12 I mean. years. Whatever. Um, <laughs> so what do you remember? Uh, do you remember what you brought to Blade Show? Or did you just go uh, just as a spectator? No, I, I I was exhibiting. I was showing. I had a table, and honestly, it's again, it's a long. I don't I don't remember what it was, but what I what I had there with me, but you know, it was probably some Damascus daggers, fighters. Um, I was starting to really experiment a little bit with art knives. Um, Paul Jarvis and I were working together at that point in time, and we had made a few pieces and. Um, so I probably had uh, some collaborations with him there too as well. Um, I remember um, the, uh, the first Guild show, uh, we t- took a major award there. Um, also a show out in um, Oregon, the Oregon Custom Knife Show, we took a major award out there. And so kind of my show career started with the blade show, the Oregon custom knife show. Um, the one we did here, we do here with the NCCA, that one too, you know, um, so but I mystic show and the Marlboro show. Those, that's those, right. The mystic and Marlboro shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
The, um, yeah. That is that the Eugene show? Is that that show? Eugene okay. show, yeah. Right. Eugene, that's a great show, by the way. If you haven't done it, you should think about it. Um, I think that's probably one of the small handfuls of shows that I haven't done. Uh, is, is probably that one actually in the Hawaii show, but that yeah, we, we did a hefty amount last year. Yeah, fair amount of shows. Um, huh. Blade show. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess you, you've been doing it. Did you do it um, sort of every year since 92 for, for a while or was it sort of for a while, for a while um, up until at least 2005, oh, wow. I, I was okay. going every year. That's, that's a fair amount of, it's a fair amount of time. That's, that's a bit. Um, did you share a table, just a solo table, road trip down, fly down? It's always, uh, it's always quite the experience. No, I- I always have my own table. I, I would usually be in the ABS section. Okay. All right. And you so right would the bring there. you'd bring your own knives. Or you'd bring billets to sell both. Uh, my own knives. Okay. Just just your own. Billets to sell. That has never made sense to me per personally. Um, I, I as a rule, I don't do it. Uh, only a few people I'll make steel for if they ask me to do it, and um, they're not that many. Certainly Richard's one. Mm. Bill McHenry used to be one. For me, it just didn't make sense. If I spent that much time uh, putting something together, what could I get for it? Three, four hundred bucks? Where I could take that same billet and turn it into three or four thousand dollars. Right. By processing it myself into something. Mm. So it, it just never made sense to me as a business proposition to sell my steel. No, I mean, that's that's logical. JD, do you want to talk about some of your knife making processes? I know that you tend to forge to shape and you do your rough grinds on a, a belt grinder, but do you do most of your house? Do you do most of your shaping? Well, yeah, as you you saw the couple of pieces that I uh, that I put up there before we were actually uh, on air and online here, but I I do try to forge to shape as closely as I can, um, because you know material attrition. I don't want to waste material. Also, um, some of the patterns I do are fairly managed and arranged and if you do too much stock removal off of them you're going to you're going to lose things it's not going to it's not going to present the kind of appearance you're after and then do you do a lot of shaping on on stones stones oh 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 oh, yeah i now i know what you were after chuck thanks (laughs) yeah 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 um, yeah, I do. A, I do a lot of my shaping on stones. Uh, the highest belt grit I will use is probably sixty. Huh? And after after I'm off a sixty grit belt, I take I take it to stones. Wait, so you like hand those, stones and yeah, or like those, a wet wet wheel stone? Uh, do you know those five buck stones you get out of uh, Harbor Freight and you know the yeah and in the Home Depot the two sided carborundum stones. You know, I, I'll go through like one of those to make a knife. I buy them four or five, six at a time. Wow. Holy moly. Okay. So I do, I do, I do, I do my shaping. Um, I establish uh, bevels and um, things like that on, on, on stones. Hmm. I, I, I don't know why. I just like <laughs> that process. And once, once I get it down to the point, I'm ready to take it to a finish. 
uh, before heat treating up to 220 grit or so, I use die maker stones. I use hand stones for that. I like them because you can change the shape and configuration of the stone. Mm. Um, you always have a fresh cutting surface. They work for me better than paper. Actually, um, the knife maker, the great Billy Mace Immel turned me on to those die maker stones. And he turned me on to those in 1992. And I haven't looked back. I've used them ever since. Yeah, I love using those over sandpaper. Unfortunately, I mainly hollow grind, so I don't use them too much for my grinds. But things like swedges and profiles, they work great on. Actually, in the process of building a a reprofilometer for those. What's that word? It's a a reprofilometer. You can't even pronounce it, dude. (laughs) It's a machine that does things with it. Essentially, imagine if if you had a jigsaw that held the the stones right. so it'd be an right. automatic way to sand and you right. adjust a stroke they're, they're expensive they're like 1500 bucks but i felt felt like i picked up one of those husky air jigsaws with adjustable stroke probably 20 dollars and make an attachment for it i think for 20 dollars i could make one of those machines it's kind wow. of a project right now during covid that that's kind of like opposite of the reason i use them i i use it to slow the process down not speed it up at that at the point i'm ready to use hand stones it's a relaxing process Mm. for me i i like the time it takes it takes a lot more time than if i went up three or four grades on belts but the result i get for me personally is much more satisfying i prefer it yeah, the, the way you talk about stones, I, I think that um, I feel like you think that a, a grinder is, a, is an instrument of um, brute destruction and that it's, a stone is a, is a, is a fine piece of a filing massage. Yeah, yeah something, something, something like that. Although I got to tell you, um, as a stock removal knife maker, I'm pretty good at it. I can, I can, uh, you know, I can take things up to four or five, six hundred micron belts, and you know, and and um, do finish with micron belts and things like that. I can do it. Right. I just, I just don't find it as satisfying. Sure. Nor, nor can I get the kind of nuance and um, and and um, uh, a kind of fine detailing that I'm after with belts. Wow. I find the stone stoning process um, um, to be much more useful to me, and uh, it, it's more in accord with my temperament. Hmm. So, I mean, a real like meditation in knife making is what you're talking about. I mean, the the time exactly. involved would be I don't know. You tell me. What's the time involved? Like triple the the amount. <laughs> Um, you know, that's, that's an interesting question because, um, once in a while I like to really kick it old school and from the forge, I'll just go at it with bastard files. I'll just knock the scale off it with, um, you know, muriatic acid for a few hours, get all the scale off it and I'll just file it. And, um, I found that it doesn't actually add that much time to the entire process, maybe three or four hours additionally. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to account that to, to your, to your decades of knowledge and skill. Cause I, I think that it, it would probably, 
take anybody else a, a bit longer. So I'll. One of the things I can tell you is like I've seen people use files and most makers don't know how to use a file properly. Okay. That's, <laughs> that's probably a fair. Yeah. Okay. I think that might be true about grinders in some cases, but I'm, I'll just keep my mouth shut on that one. That's fine. I mean, that's uh, stones and files, huh? Wow. Okay. I mean, it does, hey, it files are tricky. I learned to use my grinder properly before I learned to use a fire a file efficiently. I'd say probably a better way of approaching it would be the other way around. Hmm. Okay. All right. Uh, I'd love. Okay. So, what about all right? Uh, process. What about um? What about the rest of the business? The the hilt, the guard, the handle, the pins. Let's get into that a little bit. Uh, favorite yeah. material, uh, mosaic pins, non-mosaic pins. Um, uh, yeah, non-mosaic um, pins. If I'm going to use pins, they're either going to be like naval bronze, new gold, phosphor bronze, one of the, you know, kind of like – uh, soft colored bronzes or silver or stainless steel. Mm. That's what I'll be working with. Mosaic pins, they don't personally appeal to me. Okay. It's, it's not a look that, you know, that um, that grabs me personally. Yeah, yeah. It's totally it's totally legit. Don't get me wrong, but just not for me. Right. Uh, just not for me. Mono steel or, or, or multi-steel guards? Usually, I'm going to do a pattern welded guard. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And uh, pattern my fit my fit. If I'm doing Damascus blades, the fittings are going to be Damascus. Ooh. Okay, all the way. Why not? All the way. Uh, same pattern as the blade matching, or, or specific patterns for for the for the for the guard. You know what? I've always liked to to pair them off like. Um, fine patterns in the blade, bold patterns in the in the furniture. Interesting. Okay, that's how I generally I, I I like to work that way. I like to contrast the pattern densities of the of the um furniture and the blade. I like to, I like the uh, to have some sort of contrast. Interesting. Okay, that's pretty far out. All right, and um, all natural handle material. Always. Okay. Oh, really? Always. Always. Hmm. Always, I'm not a micarta guy. I'm not a G10 guy. No, no, forget it. No nonsense. Forget it. Okay. Uh, and again, again, those th- those materials are totally yeah, yeah, legit. I mean, they might. Be They're more... just not for me. Yeah, They're yeah. not for me. Uh, so um, hardwoods, stabilized hardwoods, um, ivory, shell, African, African blackwood. Okay, ironwood. Um, Bacote, uh, Brazilian rosewood, ebony. I like I like your fossilized ivories, and I like shell. Mm. Those those are the materials I favor most. Okay, the the real fine the real fine high stuff. That that DIW though that desert ironwood is like man that seems to be a current throughout the years for for a lot of people, and it's coming back in these days in style. It just it just doesn't want to go away, which is great because it's not a bad material at all. It's beautiful, it's gorgeous. Well, the naturals tend to cycle back around like every five years or so. 
Same thing, Mother of Pearls made a resurgence in, at least in my and Chuck's industry folders. It's been kind of dead for a bit, and now everyone's like, Mother of Pearl, everything. You did mention that you had dipped a little bit into folders, but mostly just uh, just straight knives over the years. What was the... <laughs> That's funny. Because <laughs> a lot of people don't even know I make folders, but I make them all the time. Oh, do you? Okay. All right. Okay. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about the folder game. Tell us what's good. Um, what was the last folder you made? Mm, what was the last folder I made? Two thousand and thirteen nice. or fourteen? Yeah, yeah. I made um, I made a folder. That's probably the last one I made. Yeah. Mm. All right. So it was off. It was off of a pattern that I'd used three or four times. Got you. Uh, just a manual folder, auto. Manual. That was that last one was a manual. Okay. But no, I've I've made lots of autos. If I'm known for any kind of a folder, it's gonna be an auto. Right. That's that's why we're. Here. <laughs> when I took your uh, Damascus class, JD, you had some uh, mosaic Damascus that you were working on that you were going to make right, a Louis right, Armstrong right. themed folder. <laughs> did you ever, you know did you ever get I, to I it? I still have all the steel board. Like I have the, never the, used it. <laughs> like the, the blade had music notes in it, and the bolsters were trumpets. And you were going to carve like Louis Armstrong, look like he was blowing into his trumpet right. in the ivory handle right. and look like horns and notes were coming out of the end. Exactly. Of the you know, uh, the, uh, I had a lot of help on that project from Rick Dunkerley. Yeah, he helped me a lot on that steel project. At some point, he had come to Mass Art because we had just gotten the hydraulic press. And I invited him to do uh, a week-long seminar at Mass Art just on the use of the hydraulic press in making, making pattern welded steel. And so one of the things that we did when he was up for that was to make that musical note Damascus. Oh. A Louis Armstrong. So you never actually finished that knife yet, this is what I understand. No, I finished it. I never started. It's just waiting. Oh, okay, I got you. It's just waiting. you got the, the Damascus is there. The, I've got. I still have the steel. <laughs> it's all there. I still have that brown chocolate brown ivory for Louis, and it's just you know, it has it hasn't come across my 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 um, notice in a long time. But who knows? Maybe in retirement, I'll, I'll pull it out again and finish it. Yeah, there you go. Chuck is like, I'll help you get it. Sounds like a collaboration. Could be. Could there, be. Could Waiting be. for the moment to strike. You know, no, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. um, okay. But in yeah. That was cool steel, though, wasn't it, Chucky? It, it was awesome. I still remember that. Now, what, what, when would you take a forging class? How many years ago was this? Oh, God. Probably like 2006. Is mm. that far back? 2007. Actually, or anything? That far back. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> it's a long time ago. I said, Chuck, did you learn anything? You paying attention? How was the class? How was JD as a teacher? Oh, I did. I still, I, I still have a pair. I, I still have some pairs of bolsters that I made in the class that I'm just waiting to use on the right knife. You walked out of there with some slick looking steel, man, as I recall. You did good. 
I made probably half a dozen billets of steel. Oh, wow. Okay. So, what, Chuck, was that at the beginning of your – I mean, had you forged before and you were just taking JD's class? Um, I had done some forging before, but I had never really made Damascus. So it was an opportunity okay. to learn how to make Damascus, the different patterns, um, and have access to equipment to do it. Hmm. Got to take a class for it. Got to do it. All right. Um, JD, I got a question for you about about your knives. So you've you've made knives for an extremely long time. Um, they're all they're all out there. Um, what percentage of the knives that you made do you, you have pictures of? Do you have like memories of? It seems like makers make these things and they disappear into collections never to be seen again. I mean, do you keep track of it? I mean, do you know the collectors? Do you have what's your connection with the pieces after they're gone? Almost none. I mean, if I don't know the person, almost none. I, I know several people who have kept every knife that they bought from me and they have them. Wow. Um, I would say 80% of the knives I've made do have some sort of photographic documentation. Nice. Okay. It's quite a lot actually. Yeah. I don't even think I have 80% of mine. Wow. And, I, and I'm, and I'm from a time of Instagram and camera phones. And- yeah. 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 I, I kind of developed my own style of taking a knife photo. Um, I'm not, I don't like the light backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I like a dark background. I think the knife looks much better on black than it does on white. Hmm. I agree. Yeah. It stands out more. It, Steel looks better. It seems like for a minute there, there was a lot of, uh, I want to say early two thousands, there was a lot of yellow and blue and red backgrounds floating around. Yeah. I'm not really sure where that came from. I love Coop, but that might I can tell him. you where it came from. I wonder if it was Coop. Jim Cooper. Yeah, okay. yeah, it looks like it's usually yeah, Coop, but goes for those that. three colors. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's yeah, Coop. Coop's cool. I, I dig him. I, I was, yeah, those colors. I'm not sure. He makes it work. That's great. But yeah, I, I, I favor a darker background, which it's just a knife. It should be seen badass on like a little bit darker unless less of a light background. Mm-hmm. Um, so, okay, so you have 80% of these knives uh, are photographed and and documented. Um, wh- like, where are these pictures, man? My face, my Facebook um, uh, page has lots okay. of pictures. Right. I've got lots of pictures on my Facebook page okay. of, of, like, for instance, uh, I, I'll, I'll, I will do, I'll group the knives, buoys, daggers, folders, um, small users. Um, I'll group them like that. Mm. And I'll just do a, um, a Facebook, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a gallery. Not a gallery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll make a gallery out of each class or grouping of knives. Mm. And there could be 40, 50 pictures in each one. Right. Well, it's it's good to hear that you have coverage of this because I feel like a lot of knives just, you know, they, they do just disappear into people's collections. You never see them again. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us tell us about, uh, is there a knife that sticks out in your mind over the years that, that kicked your ass that really just like, man, like this thing was a pain to build and it was like a heartache? Uh, did you have one of those? You, you must have. Did it stick yeah. out? 
Yeah. yeah. Matter of fact, it was it was an auto. Oh, was it? Okay. And All right. It was an auto, and the knife was named Murphy's Law <laughs> okay. because while I was making it, everything that could go wrong did go wrong, and at the worst possible time. Oh man. Okay. <laughs> was it was it a speculative build, or was it or was it for an order? I guess we never got to that. It was a spec. Okay. It was a spec build. Wow. So so, how did it go? What what went wrong? Everything, the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just the the garden variety of like shit storms. <laughs> okay, garden variety shit storms. Okay, yeah, like okay. busted taps and ivory cracking and checking and you know, run run the gamut on that one, huh? Run the run the gamut on it. It gave me nine kinds of headaches okay uh what about what about the what about the one that you were the happiest with the outcome um well there's uh, been a lot of those oh that's good high percentage okay all right yeah 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 there's one that um gets more remarks than probably many many daggers i've done it was kind of a big, what I call the combat dagger. I, I, dagger. I called it um, the Blackmore dagger. It was one of my first multi-billet pattern welding projects, and it turned out exceptionally well. And um, I probably like that 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 piece. That's probably one of my favorite pieces I've ever built on that one. Uh, back in the day, uh, Jim Wire was doing most knife photography, and that knife is uh, in one of his uh, later books. Oh wow! Along with four, or five, along with four or five others of mine. Hmm. Gracing the pages, huh? Okay. All right. That's serious business. No kidding. The Blackmore. All right. Well, I have to uh, have to make sure that that gets posted with the um, with the show notes because I, I would like to see a picture of that. Uh, uh, you know what I'll do? You know what I'll do? If you if you if you look on Facebook uh, and just uh, tag yourself in something, uh, I'll, or or friend me there, I'll, I'll make sure you can you you'll get um, some images that you'll like. Right on. Okay. Yeah. That that works. That works. Um, now I wanted to bring this up when you were talking about your folders, which kind of moved along. So can you tell me a little bit about your Spider Co collab? Spiderco early 2000s. Yeah, yeah no, they approached me in the late 90s to do something. Sal approached me, I think, in 1998, probably. And um, I designed something for him that was based on a liner lock that I had done maybe eight or nine years earlier and um, worked it up into a prototype for him. And uh, they tweaked it a little bit further and came out with something very nice. Uh, Originally, it was um, done in black micarta, hollow ground, and um, it had no flexible clip placement or anything like that. And one liner, only one liner, which I thought was kind of weird. It was pretty unique for that time. Yeah, but and uh, in 2009, basically what had happened is 
I took all the um, feedback from the nine years that had been out there and applied it to a new model, which gave it um, skeletonized um, inner, inner liners, um, multiple clip placement, and a full flat ground blade. And multi, uh, we already said multiple clip placements and G10 scales. That was a very, very popular uh, piece. It sold very well. Sweet. Now, I'd assume the clip placement was a Spyderco thing. They're kind of known for putting four clip positions on, on yeah, yeah. knives. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. Interesting. And now, and those are the only two models you ran with Spyderco? That's right. Were those ever represented in a custom build by you, or they were just, um, just specifically for sale? Just for sale. They were never represented in a custom build by, my, uh, by myself. Now, is that as far as your production collaborations go, or is there anything else? That's as far as they go. I'd never really worked with anybody else in the in the like Benchmade or anybody. No, I never did. Was there a pre-existing um, relationship with Sal, or it was just sort of out of the blue? Was he just a fan of your work? Uh, the latter. He was a fan of my work. Oh, that's cool. All right. Um. I have to be honest, I don't know too much about him. I've spoken to Eric on an occasion, but um, I never spoke to Sal. Did he Did he have any of your, did he personally own some of your of your work? Do you know? I don't know exactly. You know, I'm trying to even remember how the connection between Sal and myself even took place. I think it had something to do with the Oregon show, mm. and it, I think it might have had something to do with Wayne Goddard as well. Uh, okay. All right. Yeah, because uh, early on, Wayne was a very, very important person to me in, as far as like advancing my career and promoting my work. Mm. I remember in it was I did the 1992 New York Custom Knife Show, oh, and wow. Wayne was there. And Wayne came over my table, and he was looking it over, blah blah blah. And you know, he was very friendly, very nice guy. But he went back and wrote in the the local his local knife club paper the o, uh, OKCA uh, club paper that I yeah he, I always enjoyed doing the New York show and seeing the makers and blah 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 blah. This time I was got to talk to some of the newer makers. He said something like that and says, "Watch for J D Smith. He is my pick." for Superstar Bladesmith of the 90s. Oh, wow. All right. And when I saw that, somebody sent it to me, and I was like, what the flying F? (laughs) And I was like, I can't make a monkey out of this guy. I'm going to have to, like, step up and be that guy that he says I'm going to be. Right? So, So Wayne... Wayne pushed me. Uh, he promoted me. Anytime he found something he could say that was comp- a complimentary to me, he did it in, in Blade Magazine. And, you know, he published articles that I had written and blah, blah, blah. He, he did a lot to promote my career. And I got to say, I don't think it would be what it became had it not been for him. He was instrumental in the success of my knife making career, and I'll, I'll never forget him for that. 
And um, he finally retired from knife making at some point because he was ill. He was not a well man um, towards the end. And he did decide to retire. And um, he gave me his personal MS stamp. And that is the stamp I use to mark my work now was the stamp that Wayne Goddard belonged to Wayne. Wow. Um, okay. Talk, talk a little bit about the, um, your, that's the master Smith stamp. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you go into a little bit about the, the specificity on what that stamp is and, and what it means? The master Smith stamp, the American bladesmith society has a program of advancement for bladesmiths. They can go in as an apprentice Smith work towards a journeymanship and then finally conclude that program with a master Smith status. I like this program because I think it is the only knife organization that has any real objective standards for performance. Okay. It's something they concentrate on and it's something that is an actual requirement to advance you have to make pieces that perform. They're, your pieces are tested to destruction. You've, so that you've got to know, you've got to practice for this test and know and have confidence in what your work will actually do in terms of edge retention and strength. So you've, you've got to know these things. They're important to know as a bladesmith. And the ABS far as I can tell, are the only ones out there pushing the parameters of performance higher. I, mean, I think it's definitely important to have th- those standards, right? You got to mm-hmm. everyone agree to that and, and everyone's got to hold up to that. Yes, yes. And, uh, and uh, I also might say that the ABS has come to be a leader in even the aesthetic considerations of knives some of the more beautiful knives being made today are coming out of the ABS membership. Kyle Royer and, you know, the, the French guy, Lurkin, and um, another guy. And uh, um, it's, this mirrors and so many people just making really, really beautiful, beautiful work. Masterful work is coming out of the ABS so stylistically, they're leaders. Performance-wise, they're leaders. Wow. Well, you certainly you speak very highly of them and then the program. So I mean, it must you know, it's done it's done well by you, and certainly you um, you stand by it till till today. Yeah, I do, and you know, uh, several several of my former uh, apprentices have become master smiths and journeyman smiths. Hmm. So when when you became. Uh, well, all right. Can you tell us a little bit about you becoming a master smith? What what year did you enter the the uh, or what what year did you get your master smith? Nineteen ninety eight. Um, I first went up. Uh, I went up for um, journeyman in nineteen ninety five. At at the time, they permitted you to do your journeyman exam with pattern welded knives they no longer do now they must be all carbon steel but at the time that was permissible and i remember um 
when I had gone up with the pieces I went up with, um, when I was, you know, when you got your verdict and whatnot, they tell me if the rules had permitted it, they would have just given me my stamp, master stamp right then and there, but they didn't. Okay. So I had to do the, you know, the required time and grade before I could test for master. When I did test for master, however, the first time I went up, I didn't make it. Um, and it was uh, a bitter disappointment to me. They saw glue around the pin <laughs> and that, and it was over. And um, like I said, it was a bitter disappointment. So I waited. I, they, although they said they liked my, uh, my Keon dagger, that I did not have to do another one of those. But I had to come back next year with four new pieces. But what I chose to do is I went back with four new, uh, no, five new pieces because I did another Keon dagger. I said, like, you know, I'm not, I just wanted to show them I'm not a one trick pony. I can make another one that were, you know, that, so I, I made another one. Mm. And I, in, in my grouping of knives, I also presented a folder. Okay. I think I was one of the first people to do that, to actually go into an ABS um, jury with a folding knife. And, um, that folding knife that I presented basically won me the B.R. Hughes Award oh, at that. Uh, all right. So the next time I went up, um, I acquitted my my former failure by by passing with uh, what you would say were flying colors. I got the B.R. <laughs> Hughes Award that year, so huh. I felt very I felt very vindicated. Turn turn that right around, huh? I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. What's a keyhone dagger? Uh, yeah, that's what I was <laughs> going to ask that, but I, I managed to find it on Google. It's, it's, it's what every it's what everybody pronounces Quillian, oh, but it's not okay. spelled Quillian, and it's pronounced. It's a Spanish word, and it's pronounced Kion. Okay, so is not, it the one with that serpent-looking sheath scabbard? No, it's Kion. This it means uh, uh with you, you know you've seen the guard on an uh, on a. a, a what they call a quillion dagger. It refers to those extensions off the guard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found one that I, I believe this is the Keon. Yeah, it has like a serpent scabbard. Okay. Is it is is that the one that you submitted with the red uh jewel inlays on the on the handle and then the scabbard has a it's pretty much like interweaving snakes? No, no. That's a new piece. That piece oh, was made. That's an insane piece. No, that piece was made by Joseph Schneider and myself, um, maybe 2010 or 11. I forget which year. But I, I was already carrying a stamp by that time. Yeah, but it's, you know, and that's a pet peeve of mine. It's not Quillian. It is not spelled that way, and it is not pronounced that way. It is pronounced Kion. Kion. Okay. All right. That's totally, I appreciate linguistics. I can get behind that. It's, it's <laughs> you know, pronounce it right. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, collaborations. So, I mean, you you have done and continue yeah. to do collaborations regularly. Yes. I know I know yes. some, some knife yeah. makers hate other knife makers. They're like, I don't want to mess with other guys, but. Mm-hmm. But you, you've you've done some and you're doing some now. Yes, 
It depends, you know, if you if you have a good chemistry with someone and your artistic sensibilities are in accord with each other, it can be a very satisfying procedure. Um, somewhere around the like 2007 or so, um, I hooked up with um, a Russian metalsmith. His name is Joseph Schneider. And it was kind of an interesting story. It's like his wife and my girlfriend at the time, who was Russian, were at a party and they were talking. And it was like, my husband, he is jeweler. My boyfriend, <laughs> he's making knives. The two should meet. And, and, and it's like, two, they, they should meet. They should talk. You just summed up my life. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I, I get this dad. every week. That's, yeah. That's me and my dad working essentially. <laughs> so 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 you know the two the two girls put us together. You know they put us together, and so we met. Then we started. Talk, then we immediately started planning collaborations and started making them. You know we 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 turned out some pretty stunning work. Some really 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 cool work. And I, I learned a hell of a lot too working with Joseph. Wow, you can't believe like the things he will try <laughs> and pull off with metal. Yeah, things you wouldn't even think are possible. You know, he would just go at it, hammer and tongs, and just like just carve the living shit out of a piece of steel and turn it into something amazing and it, and his his ability to carve wax and cast is like non-parel he's fantastic with that kind of a thing plus he's got an incredible imagination for like imaginary mythical creatures and things like that hmm. interesting does really really great work so casting huh all right i mean that's yeah. uh that's some next level uh collaborations okay all right. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, jewelry is like, I mean, that that's, that's something that you're familiar with from, from your past. So, I mean, that, that, that blends yep. pretty mm-hmm. well, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned so much more from work, working with him. I learned a hell of a lot more than I ever knew when I worked with him. Uh, so who was that said, this is me and my dad working. Are you Russian? Oh yeah. <laughs> that's my favorite thing. <laughs> Chuck actually just texted me. He's like, JD speaks Russian. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, you speak no, I, I was gonna say, I was gonna keep speaking Russian. Uh, no, I speak it fluently. I don't know how to read it. That never learned yeah. the alphabet, but I speak yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you see you see the map right there on 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 the on the, on the server we're using for podcasting, that little island right there in the middle well it's not island that very little horizontal piece right there in the middle that's brighton beach essentially yeah, and that's where yeah, all the russians yeah, live yeah, in brooklyn yeah, yeah, no, that's where my wife was from yeah all the russians in the east coast are from this that neighborhood yeah. they're all they all just spawned <laughs> out of that just that area right there so they all just came here <laughs> now I, I live with a bunch of, bunch of russians now <laughs> No, yeah, but I, but I work with my dad. He's been working full time with me for about eight, nine months now. So it's usually the same thing. Now he's like, "Oh, I have this jeweler friend." I'm like, "Oh God, again!" <laughs> it's like, "Well, one serious, like, oh, you should meet this guy." I'm like, "Oh God!" And, you should and think then he always goes, 
you make knives? I'm like, yeah, I make knives. He's like, like pocket knives? Yeah. I'm like, they're about a thousand dollars on average. He's like, what? I'm like, dude, you make ten thousand dollar rings. Why is this surprising you? Right, right, right. I have this jeweler friend. Like, oh god. <laughs> Escape communist Russia just to work on <laughs> still my joke in Brooklyn. <laughs> Uh, okay. No, li- living living amongst Russians is a very, very, very interesting thing. Is they they're really great people. I really like them a lot. Very unique personalities. Very unique. We'll put it that way. Very unique. Very unique. It's done done wonders for improving my my, my Russian language fluency. It's because I get to speak it every day, essentially. Yeah, mine my, my got better in the last year or so because my dad works with me, so I have to talk about knife making in Russian, which was a little bit of a challenge because most of the terms are like proprietary that we've come up with. Exactly. So, like, so, like I can't really explain to someone how uh, they have to sandblast something, then dip it in ferric chloride, then tumble it, then side mm-hmm. in the flats. Like th- those four terms turn into a paragraph that I have to talk out in Russian. Right, 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 right. No, потому что я живу здесь, моя способность говорить и понимать по-русски неуклонно улучшается. Wow, he has more of a Russian accent in Russian than I do. Like, I just people don't understand what he said. I'm like, I just copy what I see. Yeah, but it's just like. Uh, this accent at the end where it's like very it's like pretty damn Russian compared to my Russian like I, I speak it fluently but I don't have a na- Russian accent I just, I just copy what I hear that's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty awesome I mean when you're immersed in it right I guess that's that's easier to pick yeah. up yeah yeah huh wow um <laughs> okay when did you start speaking Russian just because of the ladies or just was it like because of knives Oh boy, yeah, yeah. My, I mean, it's my off wife, topic, but, you know. <laughs> my wife is Belarus, and um, but you know, I wasn't really interested in it while she was around. Okay, I only became interested in it after her when I started dating another, another Russian gal. Oh, then, I, then I became interested in it. Hmm. Okay. All right. All right. And that was like two thousand and one or so. You know. Nice. Okay. That's um that's pretty awesome, especially since you talk like a Russian gangster and uh <laughs> <laughs> and Nick is immediately <laughs> All right. Any other any other uh side hobbies that we should know about? Like you're you know, secretly like a wizard or something or like <laughs> I'm, a, you know. I'm an inveterate. I'm an inveterate salsa dancer, and you know. oh, okay, is that right? <laughs> yeah, now you're showing off. Yeah, now you're just okay. All right, I speak Russian. I can salsa dance. Okay, hey, dude, these are just the facts of my life. I don't know what I can. Say. What else to say? <laughs> I mean, this is my life. This is what I do. This is how I live. So, like, you're like a professional salsa dancer, or like, what's the deal? I did do it professionally at some point. Yes. Wow. Okay. <laughs> like so competition level salsa dancing, huh? Wow. Yep. Okay. While speaking Russian, presumably, and forging a blade with the other hand. So <laughs> with the other hand. Yeah, that's you know. That's 
Is that is that a clear? Is that we'll just we'll just print that. We'll just go with that. The, the article will read, you know, JD Smith, you know, forger, salsa dancer, and fluent, you know, Russian speaker. That's fine. We'll, we'll go with that. Dude, that's only one one of the languages I speak. I speak a few more. Oh, okay. Oh, sure. No, that makes sense. Okay. Um, yeah. Once you get past three, it's easy. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. You just start dreaming in like multiple languages. Uh, it's it's a brain plasticity thing. Mm. Yeah. You were okay. That's what I wanted to bring up that we were talking about pre-recording. Was um, we were talking briefly about uh, when we were interviewing Reese Wyland, he was talking about the connection between people playing musical instruments and knife makers and the influence that that had on what he thought was his design process was being able to transfer like music theory into lines. Um, about that a little bit? Oh boy. Yes. Well, I don't know how he thinks about it, but I've always thought that making knives and music were very, they, they, they used very similar concepts. Like music, you have, music is composed of rhythm, melody, and harmony. So is a knife. Melody is the part of music that appeals to your emotions. It can be sad. It can be exciting. It can be, um, uh, it can have a happy uh, 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 mood to it. But melody is what appeals to the heart. That's where the feeling is, okay? The line of a knife, the profile and the shape of the knife corresponds to the melody. The line and shape of a knife, that's what strikes you emotionally first. It's lines. That's the melody. Rhythm is repeating patterns. What the drummer does that repeats, what the bass does that repeats. Things things that repeat in patterns form rhythms. So you can repeat a motif at the butt cap and the spacer or the or the 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 uh, the guard of the knife or or different elements that have similar shapes and functions on the knife form the rhythm of the knife things that are that form repeating patterns that form motifs this is rhythm Rhythm appeals to, um, oh, you know, let's just say what it is. Rhythm appears appeals to the more, the the kind of animalistic, base sexuality, earthy part of of the human nature is what rhythm is all about. Okay, harmony. It's how the different aspects of the knife work together just like different notes stacked upon one another can make a chord. The things like color, texture, line, form, when you stack these all up, it puts a harmonious picture together. So harmony, rhythm, and melody function in music the very same way they function in a knife. Wow. 
Okay. Once again, very, very, very clearly thought out there. There is no gray area in, in, in your process. I mean, that's um, okay. All right. Harmony rhythm. Now, do you use the same when you're pattern welding? I mean, does that that must be influenced by by the same concept? I mean, absolutely, 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 absolutely. I'm thinking of these things all the time. Wow. So music is an underlying subconscious undertone in, in almost everything you do. And therefore, like you were saying, brain elasticity do you, i mean music x knife making x language is language influenced by music because your brain was already it was already ready to to consume more information and think in in the different pattern there you go there you go that's just too far out man that's that's a hard yes on that one how many languages Oh, let me count. This is Russian, Spanish, Korean, German, and a smattering of few others. Wow. Okay. Fair enough, sir. Fair enough. Okay. Um, huh. And now music is, uh, you were also saying, so music is something that you did professionally for a while as well. Um, oh, over 30 years. <laughs> no kidding, huh? And and what was what was the instrument that um that had you? Trombone. Okay. I was a trombone right. trombone player. You were playing somewhere else and then you was was actually the reason you got to the to the bass state was music. That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh. Okay. All right. I ended up uh, attending Ber- Berkeley College of Music for six years, uh, graduating. I did um a degree in um jazz composition and i've played i played with um hell i've played with dizzy gillespie bobby hackett bobby hebb um phil wilson any number of musicians the manhattans hmm. that's far out man do you so do, do you go into the city at all to see music anymore is that still like a, or or to play music anymore or is that same thing, retired, just chilling, or what? Yeah, I I put the music down in 1999. I finally put it down permanently in 1999. I've been sort of phasing it out over the over time, but for the longest time, it was I was doing music and knives all both at the same time. Wow, I mean that must have even been even more of like a just constant fluidity of process. I mean, if if both are coexisting in in your head and influencing other it would be impossible not to no something like that yeah hmm. yeah that's like i said when you get into like your thought process and your brain plasticity it's a kind of an amazing thing i mean the interesting thing is i lately um i began teaching myself to play a drum called the djembe I've been teaching myself to play it just by practicing drum fundamentals with my hands and whatnot. And I noticed that um, my left hand was significantly less agile than my right. But what I noticed was if I did the same thing with my left hand that my right hand was doing exactly the same thing, that my left hand would perform exactly the same as my right. 
it would lose that awkwardness somehow. My brain kind of made a bridge from the left side to the right side in those moments and kind of like took over the process for the left hand. The right, the, the left side of my brain took over my left hand. It's, 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 you could almost see the neurons rearranging themselves while you practice. It was, it's, it's, it's really fast. I found it very fascinating to observe my own brain plasticity at work. Yeah. It's like, um, like mirror teaching the body to, for phantom limbs when, when people, uh, lose a limb and they look in a mirror and then they realize that the limb is not there and they immediately stop feeling pain, even though they haven't had an arm for years. Like it's your brain right. is like, I mean, really there's, right. it's, it's almost a, a limitless process. Once you understand how to really get into changing that process. I mean, like, like you're saying, it's just, you're your own limitations at a point, you know? Exactly. Uh, practicing a musical instrument or practicing dance, it, just kind of like linking your body with music. I found the interesting thing about dance and playing, dancing with music and playing music. Over time, as I improved my, you know, uh, proficiency with dance, I found like it's kind of like a yin yang symbol. In as much as music and dance are really related intimately, but in a way that's inverse to each other. In other words, playing music is movement in, you manipulate keys or strings or strike something, movement in, music out. But with dance, it's exactly the opposite. It's music in, movement out. Yeah, the movement is reaction to that. That's like, yeah. Yeah. So for me, dancing was more or less a, kinest- a, a, a kinesthetic experience because I could actually, listening to music, I saw it as colors and shapes. And to and the dancing part, I would just basically, when I heard music, I would make my body conform to the shapes that I saw that, that, were, that, were, that were in my head. And it gave me a very distinctive style. That you know that whole process is otherworldly to me. I've actually done some reading on that. Like the concept of smelling colors is just so far beyond me in a in in any kind of sober context. I can't. Uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine how how it must be when when music is involved and and you're just or, or how must that translate to to hammering steel? I mean, like you're thinking about patterns and you're thinking about. Uh, you know, the molecular level of, of bonding. I mean, that's the same idea. That's that's something in and then the metal comes out. The patterns come out. It, it's a representation of of the of the whole thing. That's crazy. Uh, interestingly enough, um, a pattern that has had more appeal to me now than it did in the past is what's called the random pattern. I began to notice that when I did a random pattern blade, that the random pattern blade for those of uh, out there who don't know what that is, is just the pattern that's created uh, from the action of forming the blade with the hammer. That's it. You, it's the blows that are struck into the steel 
and you get a complete record of what you've done when you when it's finished. What I began to notice was that when I did a random pattern blade, they all were similar in how the patterns were distributed and how they moved. One side looked one way and the opposite side looked another way. And they were similar from blade to blade to blade. And it was all about how I stood, how how I raised, how high I raised my arm before I struck, the level, the, the height of the angle. All those factors gave my blades a very distinct personality, and they were similar from blade to blade. It was I found it very very interesting to just observe that. Wow. Okay. So random, but not random. So I mean. Discordian yeah. Discordian philosophy pushed into the random pattern Damascus. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Fair fair enough. Fair enough. Um Yeah, I've I've seen some fairly interesting random patterns that that actually are striking. Uh it's not a huge favorite in our community, but the the Alabama Damascus, a lot of their random patterns I actually kind of dig. Um just because they do look so completely like otherworldly um like true true randomness uh i've seen that that's pretty cool huh i i, I like it because the the record of every blow you struck you can see it it's the, there yeah it's, the it's, the story there is 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 even better right i mean that's like that's cool i dig that every hammer strike that's that's a little piece of the of the steel in there that's right there's a little piece of you uh, I'm also a big fan of random, but it, I don't know. It depends on the person that makes in their process. Uh, some of my favorite random uh, random pattern, the mask is it will be some of the stuff that Mamasi Fire Arts makes on the chef knives. He makes some killer random Damascus. Uh, Mamasi, he's a freaking, I don't know what, wizard. He's one of these. Yeah, I like watching his pattern welding, uh, pattern welding Wednesday videos. Uh, he's amazing. We've hung out, you know, at various hammer ends and talked and talked about his process. And I, I find that he's a very fascinating guy where that's concerned. You know, anything I've ever wanted to know about his process, he's always been very willing and, and, and shares it freely. And if he, and if I ever have any problem with it, uh, you know, he'll just go home and he'll just draw it all out for me and send it to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? He'll just map it out for me. You know, he'll just diagram it for me. Yeah, every time I've asked him something, he's very willing to share his knowledge. I, I met him a few times at some hammerings. I met you a few times at some hammerings as well. Uh, I've, I haven't been to hammering in about four years, but back when I was working out side by side with Aldo, I went to a couple. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you're retired. So how do you and you you kind of just do your career here and. And there, as you go along, it's not really a, a full full week schedule. So, what kind of builds are you concentrating on now that you're uh, you're getting more choosy with your with your work schedule? I decided to go back to making um, um, to revisiting kind of some of my former stylistic um, uh, uh, motifs, like the bigger daggers and. You know, you know what that kind of a, a leather wrap carved handle thing I do, and Damascus and Mokame fittings and things like that. You know, I'm like I prefer um, when I'm doing my own work. I like the stuff I do with um, Joseph, with the diamonds and the gold and blah 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 blah. But I also like 
for myself to do my own, when I'm doing my own, strictly my own soul authorship work, I like to use humble materials and by working them skillfully, make them rich. Carving, textures, patinas, things like that. Concentrate on and being developing sophisticated um, um, ideas and techniques around around those kinds of things. Actually, that's why I'm not the biggest fan of things like Tamascus, for example. It's the material that gives you your color, but I'm a big fan of titanium. There's a lot you can do with titanium. Mm-hmm. Now, on my side, I use more of the more modern materials compared to what you're used to, but still titanium. There's multiple finishes for it, multiple ways to carve it, grind it, shape it uh anodize it do selective coloring to it there's a lot you could do with it that's why i mainly concentrate on titanium frame locks with, with nicer accents but i don't i don't go for the full dress stuff usually yeah 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 well for me it has a more uh, um sober and subdued mood to it i i think a weapon should look serious it shouldn't look kitschy it shouldn't look uh, all shiny with gigaws all over it it should be something that's basically economic with its form and function. O- only the only what's necessary and only what's effective should be seen or used or or, or held. You know, just the real. You got to strip it down to its essence. You know, that's that's how it works for me. Maybe some other people would prefer to do more ornate and flowery things, but not me. I don't. I don't think of it that way. I totally understand. I'd probably say it's kind of the same style I go for within my folders. I don't go crazy extravagant. I like straight linear designs, uh, simple accents. I make a tool that that's then an art piece of art. And I don't. I don't make an. I don't make art that it happens to be a tool. There you go. There you go. Although I'm of the opinion that, you know, there's no reason why the tools we use should not also be beautiful. Yeah. Aesthetics. Aesthetics. They're important. Innately useful, but uh, yeah. cosmetically attractive. Well, when you think about, you know, as makers of things, human beings that we are, Aesthetics are very important to us. There is, there is just as important as form and function. Oh yeah, no, you. We naturally do want things to be uh, attractive to look at, for 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 sure. I mean, that's uh, yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, um, we'd be in a lot of trouble. Things would be a lot uglier around here than they already are. <laughs> um, so as far as um, as far as the knives go. If the listeners want a knife, they're they're SOL for the moment. You're you're retired, and uh, any any pieces are already spoken for or, or not really available. Um, but you're certainly not taking orders anymore. I'm not taking orders anymore. No. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, all right. I mean, recently I had a guy want me to make a folder, and I told him. You know, he was really hot on my tail to make a folder, and he he wanted to send a deposit. But I said, "Don't send me any deposits. Don't pay me for anything I haven't done." Because <laughs> you know, because I don't know when I'm going to get to it, and you know, I'll I'll keep in touch with you when I'm ready to start it. You know, but 
and he was kind of upset that things weren't a little more set in granite, you know, and basically he canceled it. Not, it was no skin off my nose. So I just, I just, you know, just rolled right off me. I didn't really care. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes it goes like that. Yeah. I mean, even as when I was taking orders, I didn't really accept too much input from the person who was ordering it. I'm going to make the kind of knife I want to make the way I want to make it. And if you like it, you can buy it. If not, go on to something else. But I don't do custom work. I really never have done hardly any custom work. Custom work is when somebody comes in with a design and an idea and you, and you they pay you to realize it. Nah, I don't want to work that way. Those people should learn how to make knives then. Yeah, if I'm going to work for somebody, I could work for the post office, you know. I just want to like, you know, I want to make what I want to make the way I want to make it, and that's it. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, uh, I I definitely can see it from both sides. Some people don't mind taking custom orders. Some people want to tell, you know, everyone to go to hell, and they just want to make what they want to make. I mean, that's... That's the beauty of the of the industry is um, there's collectors for everything and makers for everything else, you know? Yeah, you know, it's it's totally legit. That way of, of, of doing business is totally legit. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's not what I prefer personally. I got you. I got you. Now, now JD, how long does an, one of your average builds take you to make? Oh hell! Some of those builds we did, I do with the Russian guys. Some of those may take eight or nine months. Oh Jesus! Okay, to complete. But yeah, me, those definitely take some time. Me, on average, uh, if like one of the, something I'm working on right now, I, I got in the works. I got a couple of things in the works. I might spend if I were to just, you know, throw time in it day after day. It would probably take me a month to build it. Hmm. Hmm. Now, it's pretty reasonable for Master Smith quality forging. Yeah. What's um JD? Do you are you still doing that NCCA show once in a while? Or are you just? Uh... I don't do any shows anymore. No shows. Once in a while, right. maybe I I might not decide to do the OKCA show out in uh, Eugene once in a while. Uh, I might go down to and show up at one of the local shows. But as far as like grabbing a table and displaying, I, I kind of really don't do that anymore. When's the last time you've done the New York live show? New York, two thousand and eight. Mm-hmm. That's like what, that, was, that was my first year. That was like twelve years ago. Yeah, it was like twelve years ago. Yeah, just a handful. Just a handful. I haven't been there since. I haven't done their show since. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I don't know. I think, I think we just about, uh, I think we covered all, all the topics as far as I can think. Um, I gotta say it's been a, it's been a, it's been a ride, man. It's, uh, (laughs) some, some unexpected turns in that roller coaster. I got, I gotta say. Like what? I mean, that's we had we had a really oh the nice multiple language the, the multiple right. languages thing that was that totally I did not expect that the Russian that, mobster yeah, accent that was, that was even surprising me. <laughs> I was speaking the Russian on the show is pretty uh, that's some impressive <laughs> shit, my guy. That's uh that's pretty good. Okay, no, that was uh it was 
it was definitely good. Um, I, I definitely, I really, uh, like I said, I, I appreciate you, you coming on and, um, and, and spending some time with us and, and going over some stories. Uh, I, you know, I, I say this a lot, but I definitely, it would be great to, to have you back on and, and talk some more uh, at some, at some future date. I think that, I think that'd be a blast. Anytime, anytime. I enjoy this stuff. You know, what else, what else have, do I have to do in retirement? <laughs> yeah, there you <laughs> go. War say. War Especially in the current times we're in too. Yeah. All right. Cool, man. Um, well, on that note then, uh, thanks for listening. Um, that was another awesome episode of, of Bladeology. This is Jeremiah Burbank from PVK Vegas, and I'm signing off. This is Nick Chuprin of NCC Knives. You can find me on NCC Knives on Instagram or NCC Knives at Yahoo.com. Signing off. This is Chuck Gadritis of Gadritis Knives. You can find me on Instagram or Facebook under Gadritis Knives. Signing off. This is J.D. Smith of Hammersmith Knives and Publications. You can find me on Facebook or AmarusBladeArts.com. Thank you very much.